When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning, you little bitch. What's your name? What's your favorite movie? Who are you? I'm going to cut you like a fish. All right, sorry about this. What up, everybody? So early. I'm Austin Hayden, and I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got a creepy-ass Ryan. What up, creepy-ass Ryan? Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, creepy-ass Ryan. I'm only here for this episode, I promise. We got Raymond... Um, I'm also creepy, but not because of my voice. And for the third or fourth time, we have Rashawn joining us. Hey, what's up, everybody? And uh, this week, if you couldn't tell by Ryan's, by Creepy Ryan's um, intro, I should say, um, we are going to be talking about the 1996 postmodern classic horror film Scream, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson of Dawson's Creek fame, or of Scream fame, or everything else that he did. But I always forget that he also did Dawson's Creek, which was, you know, had a huge impact on my childhood growing up. But um, so it's directed, as I said, by Wes Craven. Starring Nev Campbell, Skeet Ulrich, Matthew Lillard, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Jamie Kennedy, Rose McGowan, Drew Barrymore, The Fonz is in it, etc., etc. All right, let's go around. As always, we're going to talk about first impressions. What was it like the first time you watched this film? What's it been like on repeated viewings? How many times have you seen this film? I have been told that Rashawn is something of an academic on screen. Um, so no pressure, but we are going to load things up. And I, just so people who are watching the live stream can see, I've got my academic gear. And these are my, these are my lit professor glasses. Um, so I'm going to be the artsy postmodern. Don't call me doctor. Just call me Austin professor this episode. Uh, but Rashawn, you, you are the scream expert. So let's get intellectual here. Um, Woods, tell us Woodsboro first impressions. high school graduate, Rashawn Durrell. Class of 96. Yeah. Um... I don't know how long, how many times I've seen this movie. Uh, I saw it first time when I was nine, which I recommend for all children. Um, <laughs> I I love this movie. I, I love this franchise. It means a lot to me. And, you know, we can dive into the psychology of that. Um, but I know it like front to back. The second, the sequel was the first movie, horror movie I ever saw in theaters. So... Scream expert or obsessive? I don't yeah. know, but this movie is just like. Do you, do you love the me. franchise, or is it this the first film? Every film, all five. Okay, yeah, sign me up. And you've seen the new yeah. one three times. <laughs> okay, awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome. What's it been like on like repeat visits for you? Like, if this is the gift that keeps on giving, what exactly is it giving? Yeah, I mean, uh, like a month or two ago, I just, I had seen it, but I didn't get the feeling that everyone had with No Way Home. I get it now, because this is my repeat Christmas viewing, like, warm feeling inside. Everyone's back. It's the iconic franchise, you know. So, yeah, third time will probably be a fourth, so. Damn, okay, all right. Well, Ryan, what about you, brother? 
I feel like I've gone on a, a journey with this movie, yeah, because I was around, you know, 10 or so when it came out, and when I and and when I finally saw it, I certainly didn't get the meta aspect because I didn't understand all these references, yeah. you know? I didn't even know what meta was or postmodernism was. I was just kind of like, oh, this is a crazy horror movie, you know, the, the one where everyone dies one by one, and you got to guess who the killer is. It's a mystery. It's cool. And then... I uh, definitely, when I was in college and getting way more into uh, films and stuff, this was like all over my film studies, narrative studies uh, courses. Because, yeah, there's so much to break down in it from just a postmodern aspect. And when I finally started learning what that was and stuff, I'm like, oh, man, man this movie is, is significantly better than it was when I uh, than I ever thought it was when I was a kid because I just saw it on a superficial level and now breaking you can, there's so much you can break down in West Hand you know and the, uh, most importantly not most importantly but it's just so cool that Wes Wes Craven who you know kind of built this genre I would say or was one of the founding fathers of it maybe not built it but but the, the, it was it's just cool that he uh, created this franchise and that he was the one to direct it um, I, I I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the movie. But uh, uh, in terms of breaking it down, one thing I would definitely want to touch on at some point is just the market. This has one of those brilliant marketing campaigns of any movie ever. And that, uh, uh, specifically, spoiler alert, you know, um, like Drew Barrymore was one of the top billed actresses in the movie. And she dies in the first five, ten minutes. And, you know, just from a I wish more filmmakers mm. did that or more. I wish that the marketing was was did uh, was just thought about more, more intentional in terms of giving you, you know, bait and switches and 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 whatnot, and, and misleading you and misdirecting you, because that's such an awesome, you know, it yeah. sucks to watch a trailer and you feel like you know the whole fucking movie and stuff, but to have them literally trick you like that, where uh, and then go, oh my god, Drew Barrymore died, what the fuck? I have no idea where this is gonna go or who who's the killer or whatnot at this point. Um, it's great. I wish that more people did that. So, uh, props to everybody involved. Raymond, what about you, brother? Um, well, I'm, I'm glad Rashawn could join us today. Um, he's, uh, he's my best buddy. And I think we have talked about this movie and by extension, the series, as long as we've known each other, because as Rashawn said, he, he loves these. And I don't know if it's out of some sense of responsibility to my friend, or if it's just because I want to be part of the phenomenon. I have tried and tried and tried again to, uh, to to appreciate these films and I just can't. <laughs> All right, um, naysayer, let's go. It's and <laughs> I I think that I it's it's similar to Pulp Fiction for me. I think where I I understand and appreciate the movie's position in film history. I understand the the impact that it had on the the industry and popular culture as a whole, but I. I don't think that reality precludes it from being a a fairly average movie. Um, I think the Drew Barrymore sequence is phenomenal. And pretty much after that, it kind of hits diminishing returns for me. It's kind of tough to go from starting your movie with like a 10 out of 10 and to mm. maintain that sort of level mm. throughout. And similar to Pulp Fiction, I rewatched this movie a few nights ago thinking like, this will be the time where it really clicks for me. And every time I rewatch this movie, honestly, I end up just feeling more alienated from the material and more vexed at its continued cultural purchase. So I don't want to drag the film. I know there are a lot of people that love it. Um, obviously, 
all all due respect to Wes Craven. And uh, I'm like I said, Rashawn, I'm really glad that you're here because I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate a more enthusiastic take on the movie than than mine, which at this point, my feelings towards it are just kind of like it just it, it's just not for me. And I don't think that I'm ever going to be able to find my way into the fandom. And that just is what it is. But I'm, I'm glad that the movie exists uh, because it brings a lot of joy to somebody that I love. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that that's the case. And I hope that you still love me after this podcast is over. Oh, this is Aww. such, this is, we're bridge building here. This is how Kill you him, build got bridge. him like a fucking fish. Listen, listen, this, yeah. <laughs> All right. So I, I similarly, when I first saw this film, I saw it as a kid. I, I just thought it was scary and creepy slasher film. Um, I, you know, obviously had a huge crush on Nev Campbell. Uh, I was a big Party of Five fan. So like for me, that, that was like what the film was as a kid right and then as I grew up then I got introduced like Ryan said into some of the more critical aspects to it and I've come to really admire this film I think that there's something really interesting about what it's saying about critiquing the media um, kind of emerging towards the tail end but still the peak of the satanic panic and if anybody grew up in the American evangelical church as I did you would be very familiar about some of the fears of the occult gripping young children and the desensitizing of the youth and things like that and there's some very on the nose dialogue in this that I was very aware of in last night's watching of this film that is very much like um, uh, trying to throw a grenade or throw its hand into the culture war of that time, which I think is interesting because also I was talking with my partner this morning and we were basically like, you know, this film actually is still quite fresh. Uh, Besides the fact of the brick cell phone, the Zach Morris cell phone, as I kind of call it when uh, Courtney Cox pulls it out at one point. But um, otherwise, it feels pretty fresh in terms of, you know, the exploitation of, uh, of, of fe- uh, female bodies for um, viewing pleasure is explored. Sensationalism of violence in media is explored. Um, for me, this is one of those films that isn't scary anymore. And because once you know the twists and the turns, it loses a little bit of that, I would say, emotional impact. But nevertheless, why I still find this film fascinating and maybe even more enjoyable than I would have when it was just a scary film is that I think there's a lot of intellectual teeth um, to it, and I love to chew on something that's going to kind of present things like that. As I've said periodically, and I think we emphasized it a lot last episode, you know, films are cultural artifacts, and they are kind of like time capsules, and they are also these kind of um, sounding boards for the stories that we tell about ourselves. Not just the stories that we tell to others, but the stories that we tell about ourselves. And I think that's what's so interesting. So I'm always curious, what is the story that Wes Craven is telling, that Kevin Williamson is telling about humans in the mid-90s, and then maybe even about quote-unquote postmodern society and then also like what can we take in terms of um is this you know uh is this a critique and celebration of horror films in what way and then what have other what have other films done in its legacy i think particularly of cabin in the woods you know there are a couple of scenes that in this i'm like oh shit that's directly mirrored in cabin in the woods and and so i think you know this exploring of the format of horror films itself is really interesting and intriguing and i i agree with rashawn that it's 
I think it's a gift that keeps on giving. Or maybe that was my phrasing, but um, inspired by Rashawn's love for this <laughs> this film. But I think it is a gift that keeps on giving, so I'm kind of excited to to start peeling some things back. But before we do that, we've got to go into a recap, of course. And um, But before we do that, I do have a couple announcements. we got some housekeeping things. We're, we're making some changes on the podcast, everybody. Um, for those of you who have been with us for a while, you would know that there have already been some significant changes over the last few years as Wisecrack as a company is kind of changing and growing and morphing into different areas. And so we've been kind of thinking uh, amongst ourselves, like, what can we do to better serve the content? Um, How can we better kind of like even find more enjoyment in what we're doing? And so what are we going to do moving forward? So a couple things. One, this will be our last live uh, podcast. We're still going to do the video version, but we're not going to do it live. So we love y'all for being in the live chat with us. We thank you so much. Please keep contributing down below through the rest of this episode, but we're no longer going to be doing live. We still be will we'll be doing like the, the, the video version, but it'll just be uploaded um, when everything's all kind of uploaded together at a later date and stuff like that. Um, also, we aren't going to be doing the mailbag section anymore at the end of the episode. And this isn't because we don't want to hear from you. So hold on a second. We're still going to be doing mailbag episodes, but we're going to be doing singular episodes where we basically just go through the stockpile of voicemails and emails and things like that. And the reason is because oftentimes we feel a little bit of a time crunch, you know, when we get to the end of the episode and it kind of sucks, you know, like I always say something juicy. Right, I always say something juicy at uh-huh. the end, Raymond. Every time, every time, every time, every time, and then and then Raymond wants to jump in, but then you know there's like a little bit of you know he can't jump into there it. Was, and so, there was one episode where you said like Raymond, what is the point of art? And I was like, we're about to <laughs> sign off. Or where like, do I begin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Start a so, new podcast. So what we're gonna try to do is make sure that we can like not feel those time constraints and we can actually give you more of the meat of the discussion and then what we'll be able to do also is we won't feel like we're rushing through the emails at the end just to maybe get a couple in or something like that so we'll have dedicated mailbag episodes that are going to come out semi-regularly where we just go through the backlog and then we can really spend time and actually address your questions more in depth right so i think i think that'll be great and not having to do it live every week will also free up our recording schedules in a way where we're not like trying to fit it in at the last possible moment. So overall, yeah. we think this will this will give us the opportunity to make a better show for everyone. Uh, and by everyone, I mean you, the listeners. That's right. And it'll be better for us being able to get guests too because scheduling guests in Absolutely. a very sort of rest- very restricted tough. time – yeah, it's a little bit tough because we're all over around the world. I'm in Sydney, Australia. You know, you guys are in L.A. I don't know, Rashawn, where you are, but we've had people from the U.K. on here before. So it's like it's freaking difficult. So this will make it a lot easier to get um, more guests and things like that consistently as well. And I do just want to just just clarify something. Um, Matt, the producer, just noticed it down or mentioned it down below. We're going to be kind of carving up little clips and we're going to be putting clips of the video version on the main Wisecrack channel as well. So you'll still be able to access, you know, video sound bites and see our cool fashion and shit like that um and then we're also going to try to be a little bit more make more of a concerted effort to announce what the next film is that we're going to be discussing so that you all can um make sure that you're up to date with us and watch the film ahead of time with us along the way so i'll just say it right now i'll announce it at the end of every episode but for right now we're watching little miss sunshine next week okay so that's what we're going to be talking about for next week little miss sunshine listen 
last bit of thing, follow us on Twitter, SMTM underscore POD. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash wisecrack. Um, what else do we got to say? Check out Culture Binge. Uh, send us your love. Rate and review us, etc., etc. Housekeeping out of the way. We love you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get into the recap of Scream, and we'll start peeling this bad boy apart. Okay, so... Uh, Scream. High school student Casey Becker is home alone when she receives a somewhat flirty phone call from an unknown person, during which they discuss horror films. However, the caller turns sadistic and threatens her life. Ryan, can you do the creepy voice real quick again? What is it? Yes, yes, I can, Austin. Uh, what did you What did you want me to ask? I'm sorry. The, no, no, that's it. I just wanted the creepy voice. So what's it's your a creepy favorite, voice. What's your favorite scary movie? Okay. What's your favorite scary movie? Okay. Uh, then he reveals that her boyfriend Steve is actually bound and gagged outside on her patio, and he demands that she answer questions about horror films. But Casey gets the answer wrong on a technicality, so Steve is gutted. Then later, Casey herself is stabbed and murdered by a wear- man wearing a black robe and ghost mask, what we will call ghost face. And then her parents end up finding her disemboweled corpse hanging from a tree. After the murders, news media descend on the town and a police investigation begins. Now, as Sydney Prescott struggles with the first anniversary of her mother's rape and murder, a news reporter, Gail Weathers, who dis- Sydney dislikes, arrives. Gail was responsible for spreading rumors and conspiracy theories about... Uh, Sydney, Sydney's mother's death, insinuating that the imprisoned Cotton Weary, who had been tried and convicted of Maureen's rape and murder, was not actually responsible for her assault and killing. Soon after, Sydney gets a taunting phone call and is attacked by Ghostface. Sydney's boyfriend Billy arrives shortly after, but when he drops his cell phone, Sydney suspects that he is the one that was making the call, and then she runs away. Billy is later arrested, but they find out that it actually wasn't him that could have made the phone call, so he's released, but suspicion shifts to Sydney's father, Neil Prescott, because the calls have apparently been traced to his phone. So school is suspended in the wake of the murders and the killer ends up stabbing Principal Hembry, aka the Fonz, to death. Tatum's boyfriend and Billy's best friend, Stu, decides to throw an end-of-the-year, well, I guess a school closure party, and uh, so Gail attends uninvited because she thinks the killer's going to strike again. Deputy Dewey, who's Tatum's older brother, he arrives because he thinks the murder's going to strike the party, but the killer does end up coming and murders Tatum by crushing her neck with the garage door, which is one of the craziest deaths I've ever seen <laughs> in any movie ever. Because I've I've been around a lot of electric to, uh, garage doors. That's powerful. That's powerful freaking garage door. Um, anyway, many other party <laughs> attendees end up getting drawn away because they hear that the principal has been killed. So it leaves only Sydney, Billy, their friend Randy, Stu, and Gail's cameraman Kenny at the house. Now, after having sex, breaking the rule of a horror film, uh, number one, Sydney and Billy are confronted by the killer. And Sydney escapes from the house and seeks help from Kenny, but the killer slashes his throat. Gail tries to escape in her van, but she crashes. Meanwhile, Dewey is stabbed in the back while investigating the house, and Sydney takes his gun for protection. She retreats into the house where she finds Billy wounded. She gives Billy the gun and shoots Randy, but Billy then reveals that he's the killer and he was just using corn syrup, which is the same as the pig's blood that was in the film Carrie, so he was pretending he wasn't actually stabbed. And then they find out that Stu is an accomplice, so there's two of them, and that's how they could be at different places at once. Oh, now Billy and Stu do the evil thing that all evil people do in movies and they reveal their entire plan (laughs) in a really long expositional dialogue where they tell everything about the murder spree and they're going to blame it on Sydney's father because they've taken him hostage and the reason is because uh, they actually murdered Sydney's mother and framed Cotton because she was having an affair with Billy's father and drove his mother away so he's got some 
teenage angst, and that's what happens here. Okay, so uh, Gail then intervenes, though, and the intervention allows Sydney to escape and turn the tables on the killers, taunting them with a phone call and donning the killer's costume before knocking Billy out and dropping a television set on Stu's head, killing him. Very much a uh, Wes Craven, uh, last house on the left, rape revenge kind of moment, which I love as well, because there's always, like, intertextual things going on in these films. Okay, but Randy is revealed to be wounded but still alive, and he remarks that the killer always resurfaces for one final scare, and as Billy starts to rise, Sydney shoots Billy in the head, killing him for good. As the police arrive, Dewey, badly injured, is taken away by ambulance, and Gail makes an impromptu news report, of course, about the night's events. End of film. All right, but before we continue, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor, Storyblocks. Listen, you all know the deal. We talk about them all the time, and it's because they're legit AF. They are the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over a million plus royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. And the great thing is, look, if you're a creator, we know that you probably aren't rolling in the dough. And even if you are rolling in the dough, you still got to be wise with your finances, right? We're all trying to just be better positioned so we can create sick content and they have subscriptions at Storyblocks for every budget so you can stay on budget for your project with affordable subscriptions that scale to meet your needs everything's royalty free and it's always a demand driven library which means they have an ever growing library of options that is constantly being optimized and the assets are being improved including now 4K and HD footage After Effects and Premiere Pro templates music, images SFX, etc., etc., etc. And do I need to say it again? Everything is royalty free. That's why I use Storyblocks. That's why Wisecrack use Storyblocks. That's why everybody that I know that is a creator has at least a subscription to Storyblocks. So run over to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack and you can learn all about the options that they have that'll best suit your needs. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or you can click the link down below. All right, now let's get back to the show. All right. So let's start peeling things apart here. Um, so as we've kind of hinted, this film is a postmodern film. What the first? What does that mean? Like, what what are we talking about when we say it's a postmodern film, Ryan? <laughs> well, Austin, um, postmodernism. <laughs> uh, my understanding. I'm probably not going to get the de- dictionary definition, but at least in college they would be like, all right. Uh, uh, before you would just watch, you were watching media and you were, it just kind of was happening and you were kind of this passive viewer. And then at some point, we all kind of learned the rules of these genres that just kind of got absorbed into us and it became such a fabric of our beings that now, uh, you know, you have stuff like Looney Tunes where it's just literally playing with the format, playing with the structures, playing with the cliches of genre, of subgenres, of, of, you know, all this stuff, tropes, if you will. And, and kind of playing with it, mixing them like a DJ. And uh, I don't know. That was kind of a lot. But I, what, what do you think about my definition, you guys? Yeah. Anybody else? Any, any additions there? The, the definition of postmodernism? Well, yeah. just in what way is this a postmodern film? What are we talking about when we say that? I think, I think the movie is, uh, on one hand, kind of what Ryan was saying, that there's, you know, uh, uh, an awareness of the formula and their self-awareness. You know, yeah. 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 I think that's, it's defining characteristic with regards to, uh, you know, it's perceived post-modernity that there is, there's an obvious self-awareness to the film. I think there's a tension though, between that and being, you know, meta or metatextual. Um, 
I would argue that this movie is not like substantively metatextual. I think it's self-aware in that, you know, it's a horror movie about fans of horror movies and they're endeavoring to avoid the mistakes of horror movie victims. But there's no like, there's no calling attention to, or uh, at no point does the medium of the story, at no point within the diegesis of the film is there like, attention called to the fact that they are themselves within a movie like the third one which is my favorite in the series is a movie about the production of a movie that is based on the movie you are currently watching (laughs) and I like that one so much because the snake really starts to eat its own tail and it just feels like the natural end point for the 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 themes that they introduce in this movie and I, having just watched the third one for the first time, and I had a conversation uh, a few days ago with Rashawn about how much I enjoyed it in spite of the fact that I'm not big on on the other movies in the series, is I think that that, that movie commits to the thematic ideas of this as a postmodern or metatextual series without still trying to like have its cake and eat it too. Like, this movie, I think, maybe rubs me the wrong way sometimes because they're calling attention to a lot of these tropes that they are ostensibly better than, but then they do all of those tropes. It's just the only thing that separates them from other slasher movies is that they occasionally kind of wink at the audience and say, like, yeah, we know that this is, you know, this is bad decision-making or poor judgment or what have you. But that's one of the things that makes me hold it at arm's length is that I feel like it's... It, maybe it feels a little condescending to me to be like this this movie is selling itself as something that transcends those tropes when in reality it's just replicating those tropes with a wink and a nod and do you that, think though it's that's repli- something that kind of bugs me go ahead do, do, well, do, well do you think it's replicating them though or well which it is but but more so that the killers themselves the characters in the film are attempting to replicate them. So they're trying to make their own real-life movie. horror movie. And, and, so in and a it's way, important. they kind of have to do that. Right, and no, Billy I, even I says, because but- Sydney says, you know, this is not a movie, this is real life. And he says, it, it is a movie. It's all one big movie. And I think that, I get what you're saying, but I think that the that what's really at play here is the loss of innocence. So one of the things in, um, like, the studies of postmodern art, literature, etc., it's a sort of lost of the sincerity of just kind of telling a story, but now it's always, I'm telling the story, but I'm also trying to let you know that I'm aware that I'm uh, fallible and that I'm socially conditioned and I'm aware that, you know, there's a contingency in what I'm telling you or I'm aware that I'm following a formula and so I'm going to call attention to that awareness. And then the question is, is like how many layers of, um, of kind of, uh, meta textuality can we put on top of that and I think there are a couple other little subtle things not just Billy explicitly saying this is all one big movie um, and that everything is all one big movie which is again this idea that there is no meaning outside of the text or that there is no sort of like reality that movies are representations of but rather it's all a creation it's all a fiction which is a very sort of uh, kind of potent trope in postmodern literature also important to remember that Wes Craven studied philosophy and literature and then was a professor of 
uh, kind of this this genre of literature for a little bit before he started directing p- porn films and then um, and then made horror films. But um, so that's also something interesting to think. And then I, I, a couple things. One of my favorite moments where it breaks the fourth wall is when Jamie Kennedy is watching Jamie Lee Curtis and his character name is Randy, but he keeps saying Jamie, turn around, Jamie, turn around, like he's talking to Jamie Lee Curtis, but actually the killer is behind him. But it's funny because it's Jamie Kennedy. Yeah, and so again, there's this breaking <laughs> if only, of the. If only we, if only he knew what we did. <laughs> exactly, and we're I, sitting I, there like Jamie, turn around, you know. And so again, I, I, yes. I think I, they are I trying understand to pop the your, yeah. your argument that they're the killers are manipulating these situations, but you would say the same thing of literally, uh, like they are the locus of conflict and drama in this film, the same way that they are in any slasher movie, and I, I, I think that. On the one hand, yes, you could. Uh, I would concede that, sure, that the killers are replicating a certain amount of those tropes themselves, but all of the things that Drew Barrymore is bemoaning on the phone when she's saying, like, oh, you know, they, they always run upstairs when they should just run out of the house and stuff like that, like, they still do that in the movie. And I know that it's we, we come to this, or at least I, I come to this, Uh, quite frequently on this podcast, I think I just did it on the Matrix episode, which is that there is a degree to which this movie, I think, is insulating itself from criticism, because if it can beat you to the punch with regards to those things, and and say it out in the open that like, oh yeah, well we, we know it's stupid for her to run upstairs, then that sort of that inures the audience or or inoculates the film from any kind of pushback when they do that because like well they know it's stupid so we just have to go with it but i don't think that's a compelling argument against why something shouldn't be perceived as stupid <laughs> like yeah. i think Rashawn, i think when people do here. stupid things on get the him. movie and your argument him, is Rashawn. that well they know that like it's stupid <laughs> it is it's just a peculiar it's just a very peculiar defense to me and it's not as compelling as some people may find it but sorry go ahead well uh, no i like a few things i think the biggest distinction between what you said is that i don't think that everyone in the movie thinks that they're better than horror films like the majority of the characters in the movie love them. The only person that hates them is Sydney. And she's the one that comments on going up the stairs instead of running out the front door. And then five minutes later, she tries to run out the front door, but she locked herself in. So I don't think that they're doing the exact same thing that they're criticizing. Randy works at a video store and he like revels in horror movies. I, I so mean, I, think- the, I mean, the filmmakers, not the characters, but go on. Yeah, you're talking about Wes Craven. Right. Yeah. That, the film that I, I, I think that I, I think that Kevin Williamson's script is trying to have its cake. And obviously these these characters are huge fans of horror movies, but I apologize for cutting. No, no, no. I I think even through the through the characters, the filmmakers also couldn't make this movie if they didn't have a love for the genre and, and the films that came before it. You know, Wes Craven made two like seminal horror movies before this. So I think he used the, they use Sydney as a lot of the criticism, but it's also a group of friends who are criti- are loving these movies before realizing too late that they're actually caught in one. And then by the time it's it happens, they're dead. So I, I think the winking is less negative and more of a praise. Like uh, Drew Barrymore's character like loves the movies. And she gets the question wrong, like Austin said, on a technicality. And that's like her downfall. But then 
later on you realize they were going to kill her whether she got it right or wrong yeah so i think living in the movie and keeping the movie from a distance is a really distinct difference between what the characters are doing this is well that's just me. yeah and this is one of the the i think really interesting tensions of the condition of post-modernity, which is you can still know the rules, but you might still be constrained by them anyway. And I think that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that this film is doing is, yeah, they know the rules, but they still follow the rules of the horror film, right? And a couple things change. Like, you know, there's the bit where they're downstairs and they're watching the sex scene and Sydney and Billy are upstairs and they're like, oh, now we get to see the breast shot, you know? And then it cuts to Sydney and it's the breast shot, but she's covered. Yeah, but she yeah, they all high five, but she's covered. So, you know, like yeah, she she still has sex, but there's um a protection quote unquote of her modesty, which is also something that we need to explore is the the kind of puritanism, the kind of moral puritanism of of horror films and like why these rules exist in the first place and maybe what is Wes Craven, you know, somebody who was probably involved with Deep Throat, like what is he saying about our moral purity in these horror films, right? Um, and so I think I think there's something interesting it, it, to think about how just because you know the rules um, and you play within them, that doesn't mean that you fail at transcending, but actually what you're doing is you're saying, but the rules are stifling still. And that's what creates part of the horror is that even if you know the rules, you're still going to panic because there's something about the structures of the situation that kind of like, fuck, where else are you going to go? You're going to run up the stairs or like you're going to be some, you know, who's going to be attacked? You know, is it going to be a teenage girl with big boobs like they talk about who's, you know, um, you know, like I think Nev Campbell says that, like it's, it's always some dumb teenage teenage girl with big boobs, blah, 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 who's attacked or whatever. And it's like, but then this is where Cabin in the Woods takes us to the next level. And this is where I believe when Jared was talking about this film, Ryan, you might remember, he didn't like Cabin in the Woods because he thought it was really cynical and was actually mean or like kind of denigrating horror films. Because essentially it's basically saying, oh, audience, you want this? Here you go, you dummies. Like this is what you want in order to placate the demons of your own like id or your own unconscious psyche. Here you go, you dummies. You're just programmed to want boobs and violence and gore and hot people and whatever, you know? And so there is something to explore there, but I think that's kind of the fun thing in in this. Ryan, sorry, go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say that it sounds like part of Raymond's hang-up on the movie is is a reason that I like the movie. I like the idea that, that, all right, these guys know everything about horror movies, yet they're still almost like in this weird inevitable fate way uh, 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 still destined to, to, to play out a horror movie. And I, and I, I, to me, I think it's fun. And then uh, a jewel in our chat made a really a good point. Uh, when I was giving my postmodern de- definition, I kind of forgot to bring up the word deconstruction, which I, I think per- pertains to this film, you know, well, she says, Scream is clearly a deconstruction, not just imitation along with self-awareness. You know, yeah, literally we're watching a horror movie about people breaking down a horror movie and, you know, w- what goes with that. And then a horror movie happens to them. And yeah, at this point, now that we've had, you know, Cabin in the Woods and all this stuff, maybe this is a little passe or something. But at the time, in 1996, this was a fresh movie, right? This was kind of like, wow, no one had really made a horror movie with this, I guess, quote unquote, self-aware where they're deconstructing the movie. Uh, Raymond. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Oh, no, I and I, I actually agree with um, a, a few folks in the chat have been saying, like, even even dis, uh, disregarding any story concerns, someone just jumped in here. Sarah Ray said, I think it could reflect that in a state of fear, even when having the knowledge one faces the primitive mind, fear is more of a primal reaction versus logical and reasoning, unfortunately, for most. I understand all that, and I don't have a problem accepting that in a slasher movie. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of like slasher movies in general. They generally just don't really do it for me a lot of the time. What about I the film that, Slasher, the documentary about a car salesman by John Landis? I have not seen that one yet. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll, I'll get sorry back to you. Sorry to break you off. <laughs> Continue. Um, no, I think uh, the... The thing that gets me about it, and it comes back to sort of my my opening remarks on this, is that I just have to notch this one up to, like, the movie's just not for me. Because I think when I watch it, I'm expecting something transcendent, and what I'm getting is warmed-over slasher tropes that are just, you know, they're justified in their own individual way through the lens of this particular film. But I don't I don't feel like this movie is is any better than you know, your average slasher film. It, it just doesn't, okay, let's, let's, it, it just doesn't yeah. do anything for me. Let's do this then. Um, let's, let's now start talking about some of the specifics of the film. Like what specifically is this film commenting on? Um, you know, Rashawn, is there anything in particular um, that, that, that you are drawn to about like what the, the, the content of the film is or like anything specifically about what it's trying to quote unquote deconstruct which we can talk more about that term deconstruction if we want at some point um, type deconstruct in the chat if you want us to talk about deconstruction and I can give deconstruct. you a, a, I can give deconstruct. you a, I can give you a one minute definition on the philosophy of Jacques Derrida and uh, what or Derrida for us for us uh, Western Americans uh, and what he was talking about but go ahead Rashan. Yeah, I think uh, for me, something that I latch on to, and this kind of gets into the later sequels, I, I really like the arc that they take Sydney Prescott on. I, I just think she's a really well defined character, especially as the sequels go on. Um, and they hint at kind of trauma and, and healing from that and doing your best to move on from trauma because they, Maureen's death is kind of sensationalized in the first movie. And it's not until later on when they're retconning Scream and all that in and, and Scream 3 that you kind of understand a little bit more. But there's this nugget of, of something, I think, potential where she's trying to move on from this really awful thing that happened to her with the person who caused her the pain. She just has no idea. And that is just like really tragic irony to me. And I, and I really latch on to what Nev Campbell does in the movie and I just love Sydney so if there is a through line through why I'm still watching <laughs> Scream 5 in 2022 <laughs> it's definitely what what Nev does with with Sydney Campbell what do we think about Sydney yeah what do we think about Sydney's character gents I don't know Raymond? Whatever. All right. I, I mean, Raymond hates this movie. Rashawn, what do you I don't, think? I don't hate. I don't hate this movie. That's one, that's a mischaracterization. I just. I, I. I think that. I think that she's a. She's a final girl in a slasher movie. I don't. I don't have any. You know. Any particular feelings about any of these characters? I do think there's something interesting with what Rashawn was just talking about because they do emphasize a few times the the idea that she is dealing with trauma, right? And I think in '96 maybe we hadn't. 
popularly been as inundated with, you know, popular psychology and um, these emphases that are placed on us, one, recognizing what can cause trauma, and then two, how to deal with trauma. So there is something interesting and kind of fresh that this film frames, I think, so much of what's going on with the with the protagonist essentially being trapped in a cycle of trauma, um, like Rashawn just said, while also latching on to the cause of that trauma. And then, of course, we see this in the sequel. Again, she's still trying to fucking get away from this trauma, but you can't. So there's something about also the pathological nature of trauma that I think from a psychoanalytic perspective is something that is really interesting to explore. This film, as all films are, is kind of just a sort of metaphorical exploration of certain themes. And I think in one at one layer, it's definitely like a metaphorical and even personification or embodiment expression, if you will, of um, trauma, the cycle of trauma, um, how it kind of returns perpetually, right? In psychoanalysis, there's this famous term, the return of the repressed, that thing that you're trying to, or in like transcendental meditation, they talk about like what you resist persists, right? So those things, they, unless you're dealing with them, they keep fucking coming back. So there's something also about her inability to actually reconcile with her mother, even though they do a little bit of slut shaming, right? It's the recognition that her mother had these, these, these infidelities, but Sydney could never allow herself to see her mother for the person that she was. Um, one, she has to blame her. Uh, two, the killer has to punish her. And three, the trauma of this inability to actually reconcile with maybe we would call reality continually manifests itself in the return of these symptomatic and pathological forms of that trauma. And I think that's really fresh and interesting. I, I think on that note, the, the something that I like about this series that Rashawn and I talked about earlier is that the repression never has a chance to, re- or the return of the repressed never has a chance to manifest in these movies because they never get to repress the things because like there's a, this immediate feedback loop that starts in the first scene of number two where like they, they're at the movie theater watching the, the uh, film adaptation of the murders in this movie. And I mentioned to Rashawn on the phone that like, I just love one thing that I do love about this series is just how extraordinarily distasteful the entire universe is that not only are they making a mo- a series of movies in the midst of the murders on which they're based, but they are like the biggest movies in the world and everyone just loves them to the point of like scream Four: the kids are having a stab marathon on the day that some of their friends died in the murders that the stab movies are based on. And I just, like, I like when the movies go in that weird direction, and I kind of wish they would interrogate that more, that this weird, bizarro universe is just fine, not only fine with this, but is, like, actively trying to replicate it in a way that seems uh, totally inevitable every time uh, a new one of these comes out. Yeah, but I also think it, like, in the world of Scream, Stab is huge, but... Someone in the chat just mentioned the Gainesville Ripper, which Scream is based off of. But I don't think that's also like a commentary on how like TCM is based on a true story or The Conjuring. You know what I mean? And people don't stop to think like, was that a real story? I don't really care. Give me two, Le- three, four more. You Le- know what Le- I mean? Like, is it named Ed Gein. Like in the in Scream Five, they're like, oh, I know, but you know what it's I'm saying. Billy like, it's Billy Loomis's daughter. Based like, on 
it's all based of them on are an one-to-one event. character like, nobody, names and stuff. Nobody in the country might know what Woodsboro, this small Northern California town is. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a little more overt. There's nothing subtle about it. I also think it's just okay to maybe just have fun with these movies. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, Raymond. Fun. No, not directly to Raymond, but you, <laughs> but I I get looking for something transcendent. But for someone that has an encyclopedic knowledge of horror films, maybe it's not the most revelatory thing. You know what I mean? But this is one of those first movies of the late 90s 2000s like valentine i know what you did last summer urban legend where characters were just having fun before they were butchered you know what i mean and it it kind of that meta tone just like sailed through to like 2010 and scream kind of it gets plenty of credit but maybe people don't realize that it felt fresh yeah, I think that's on the cover. I, it's I, fresh. I think that's why two and three just work a little bit better for me, though, because as fresh as this was at the time, two and three still feel a little bit fresher to me now. God, this makes me want to watch two, and I haven't seen two. I've I've seen two and three once. Is two is when two she's is, off two at is college. Rashawn's favorite, isn't it? Four is my second favorite. We haven't talked about four very two much. Two is wow. Four is great, man. Four is really good. No, and I haven't, seen, and I haven't seen the new one yet. I hear the new one from some friends isn't scary, but it's kind of like really funny and stuff. What did you think? Is it? I guess I guess scary is a subjective, but I th- I thought it was really tense and really well done. You did okay. Um, You've seen it three I, times. I, yeah, I really I thought it was in equal parts kind of scary and funny. Oh, but cool. I know Ghostface is not, you know terrifying i get that okay um uh, one more beat on your question about you know what is sydney's uh breaking down sydney remember she did have sex she did with with billy she uh, she broke the first rule and she survived so whoa that's fresh for two and then also she uh uh uh, you know does she survive does she survive sure i mean like she survives people have brought up yeah, she yeah. survives in body, but, you know, is she broken, never to be repaired? I mean, I don't know. This is Hey, I'll this take that. Yes, I prefer that score. over death. This is a... And then um, <laughs> she, uh, people have mentioned in the chat, you know, she fights back, unlike yeah. most final girls in horror movies, where it's just uh, them running, screaming, trying, you know, and then happen, the killer happens to get killed somehow uh, or something. I mean, most, most fine. Like, that's the, the well-established trope of the final girl is that they, they empower themselves in the third act. And, I mean, that's... Well, That's I mean, throughout the film, I guess, throughout, like, you know, she, she's kind of a more active uh, protagonist in these slasher films than we've had before, I guess. But you are right. You are correct. The most, you know. Yeah, it's the trauma revenge thing. You know, I spit on your grave, Last House on the Left, which obviously Last House on the Left was Wes Craven. So, like, you know, it's, uh, and both of those films have had remakes in recent years, which I kind of enjoyed both of the remakes, even though they're fucking, you know, kind of like horrifying exploitation things but I kind of I, I think there's something interesting in them um, but uh, yeah it's it's that revenge you know the the abused now becomes the powerful you know the the one who was traumatized now finds a way to kind of overcome and, and and takes it and maybe even can go a little bit too far in some of these uh, revenge revenge fan like I spit on your grave they fucking she starts going fucking aggro oh you know God. some some <laughs> folks in the chat have pointed have uh, been talking about the uh, the two killers conceit which I actually like because it does it, it does keep you on the edge of your seat a little bit it, it keeps you guessing that like oh it can't be them because he was in the room with the killer at the same time and it's that's you right. know that's something that they've they've done throughout the series to kind of uh, keep you on your toes and then I think in <laughs> Rashawn and I were talking about this 
this. I think in number three, they were setting up a two killers thing and then they just edit it out because there are some times where the, the person who is revealed to be the killer is like running from the killer. And uh, I think it just kind of got messed with in post. But So real quick, in the chat, we did get a few uh, deconstructs. So if I may, uh, let me just say... Um, so deconstruction is a term that was coined by the philosopher Jacques Derrida, French, um, kind of sometimes considered post-structuralist, but he's a deconstructionist philosopher. Sometimes people will misappropriate, uh, misappropriately call him like a postmodernist, which I, I think is probably wrong. He's a deconstructionist, and basically his famous text, uh, his, famous, his famous quote with regards to deconstruction in the French, I'll read it, but it's... Um, Il n'y a pas de or text. And sometimes that's translated as there is no meaning outside the text or there is nothing outside the text. A better translation of it is probably there is no other text and it's hyphenated. And what we mean by that or what he means by that is that there is no like standard of truth that stands as the thing that can measure everything else or sometimes it's called a transcendental signified it is like a pillar like a rock that is the foundation or the standard that all texts whether it's a movie or a book or even a conversation like this can appeal to to be the ground of meaning or truth right but that you have to kind of understand things internally as like an internal critique so if this film is a deconstruction of the genre of horror and maybe even larger the kind of media of film what it means in that sense is, as a deconstruction, is that it's not appealing to something outside, which is why I think it's so significant when Billy says everything is a movie. In other words, everything is a construction, right? Everything is a social construct. Everything is an imaginative construct. Everything is a product of fantasy, right? There is nothing that is quote-unquote real. We're all fabricating our reality. So these killers in this film, as Raymond was saying, yeah, they're kind of the drivers of the drama, but from a sort of more like theoretical perspective, what we could say is they're the ones who were kind of active agents in the construction of reality rather than passive agents. But even the passive agents are still kind of stuck, if you will, within the confines of the quote-unquote text. So that's really kind of what we mean when we talk about deconstruction, right? So to deconstruct then is to work inside of that framework and do what is called like an imminent investigation or an imminent critique, imminent too, like inside of, rather than trying to appeal outside because you can never actually get outside, right? Rashawn, kind of as someone who, as as oh, someone yeah. who has watched this movie as many times as you have and and love it as much as you do, I'm sure your relationship with this movie has changed a lot since you first saw it at, at nine years old. Do you feel kind of some of the stuff that Austin was talking about when you watch the movie? How do you interpret it? Does does the lens through which you watch it change each time? Do you look for different things each time, or is it most often just like, oh, I just want a, a comfort movie? It's funny that that was great, Austin. I, it's funny that I never think deeper about Scream until I meet someone who doesn't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> iron, on iron, iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. That's, yeah, yeah, that's why he's been right, keeping right, me around. Right. Yeah, but I mean, like you said, I was nine, so they're mentioning they're mentioning Halloween and prom night, and I'm just like, what are yeah, you know? So I had a lot of movies to catch up on as a you know, and a mature 10 year old. So that kind of like shaped my viewing of it, like 30, 50, I don't know how many viewings later where I would, like Austin said, reward repeat viewings where I would find things and just kind of appreciate it 
even more than I already did. Um, so I, I, I've been enjoying this conversation as much as I disagree with everything Raymond's saying. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been really interesting to kind of deconstruct it. As as an eagle-eyed repeat viewer, do you think there are two questions? Is there anything aesthetically or within the frame that uh, people who haven't seen this as many times as you have might miss? Any like little Easter eggs or clues or and anything that's neat or fun at all? And I guess a, a second question is, as someone who has watched this as many times as you have, for the doubters like myself and maybe some folks who are listening to this who are on the fence about the movie... What's what's something you feel is really persuasive about it that that you think uh, brings this movie uh, a cut above the other slashers? Uh, whew, no pressure. Um, <laughs> I think um, it, it's fresh in that it, it treats this movie as a playground for people that love horror films. And you can kind of peek around every corner and every set piece and be like, oh, I get that. Or, oh, they just mentioned the howling. That's so cool. Um, As far as, like, I don't think Billy and Stu are, like, the freshest twist or the most, you know, new thing. It's pretty obvious once you rewatch it that they're just hiding in plain sight, which I think in and of itself is kind of clever, really clever. You know, getting arrested right away and and then framing each other and then making the phone call while you're in jail. It's just, it's all there for you because the movie kind of wants you to rewatch it and, and pick up all that stuff. I don't think there's anything that's like in the very corner of the frame that you would miss once you get a second watch or a second or third watch. It's just a really fun ride. And I, and I don't use that as a pejorative. I just mean like, yeah, like once you finished it, get back on and then, take this journey again because it's so much fun and this is one of the interesting things though is that is that filmmakers are oftentimes they are this is, goes back to the whole idea of deconstruction and that they're not being in other text you know Wes Craven commenting on other horror films or when Tarantino is like I've, I've heard like Samuel L. Jackson say that Tarantino's like okay and so you're gonna walk up and it's gonna be like so and so from this movie and then the camera's gonna move like from this movie and then the shot in the background is gonna be like from this movie Tarantino only thinks in the language of cinema so there's always an intertextual kind of drive right that's a very sort of there is no other text because the texts that he's referencing are the very texts that he's emulating or being inspired by in this film in its references to all these other horror films it's intentionally letting us know hey like this is one an homage to an entire genre of subtexts and simultaneously it's a new iteration of it and you slowly nudge right like there are pure derivatives which are just copies which can be boring and they don't nudge anything into new directions but i think the freshness that rashawn is highlighting is that it kind of yeah it imitates, right, flattery or, or what is it, like the imitation of art is the sincerest form of flattery or something like that, right? This is, you know, great artist steal kind of thing. He's stealing, but at the same time, he's also saying, in my stealing, I'm like enfolding so many layers so that what you actually end up getting is a fresh product. And it just kind of nudges and then 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, you're like, oh fuck, how did we get here? Cabin in the Woods maybe being like the pinnacle of what that film was trying to do, you know, 30 years later or whatever it was, 20 some odd years later, and you're like, oh shoot, okay, and then 50 years down the road, and so you see just like slight little shifts, and I think that's what this, it's like it's, a, it's like film nudge theory or something like that. Sorry, Ryan, <laughs> Ryan go ahead. 
<laughs> I, 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 awesome uh, points you just made. I, I was kind of going to just make a point because I know we're probably getting to the end of this here uh, uh, about how when I was watching this this last time, I, I w- even though the movie is, I f- still feel like pretty fresh. I cannot stop thinking about how hilariously dated like the phone situation, especially in the movie is, you know, there's yeah. everything's is on landlines <laughs> and like, there's no caller ID, obviously. So you're getting all these, you know, I, I, my call, my, my fucking phone is useless because it rings a million times a day and I never answer any of them. These people are just answering every call that, you know, rings and stuff. And then it's <laughs> the, 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 the moment that, yeah, it's like, Oh my God, in slow motion, Billy's or, or, or not Billy or whoever the fuck is outside. Whenever his cell phone falls down in slow motion. Right. You know, it's like, wow, that guy has a cell phone. Holy, like, that's the moment. Like, that's supposed to be what's in your head. Like, whoa, he must be that the That's killer. the smoking gun. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. one has a cell yeah. phone. <laughs> like, like, and now today, of course. A cellular. A like, cellular oh, sorry, you phone. Your phone. Yeah. yeah. A, c- a you cellular your phone. Yeah, the deputy's like, tell me what you were doing with a cellular phone. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, a cellular telephone. It's definitely a product of its time is all I'm trying to say. I uh, I want to take a moment to uh, acknowledge a few folks in the chat. Uh, Jacob M, especially because he has spent twelve dollars over the course of this live oh, chat. Thank so you, I Jacob just, M. I just want to give him a shout out because he's uh, he's thrown a few uh, bucks our way to see if we would ask answer a few of these questions real quick. Uh, Ryan, uh, you should never say yes. who's there. Don't you watch scary movies? He mentioned the Gainesville Ripper, which Rashawn acknowledged, and then also. Um, he asks if the series would be improved with Macaulay Culkin as part of the cast. Why? Yes. <laughs> Why yes. not? Matt, Macaulay yes. Culkin's great. Yeah. And then uh, yeah. a real I think quick. Be a great and, and, and it'd be better if they just had like a moment, just a nod to Home Alone, right? Just like. Well, or it'd be like, funny if he was playing like if he was playing a child actor who had grown up. Yeah. You know. Exactly. And, like those perfect. Yeah. He should Let's be one it. of the Matt actors. He should he should play David Arquette in Scream Three. Oh yeah. Um, totally. Okay. So and then also <laughs> due to brother, his brother does pop up in four so that's cool oh that's right um dude abides popped into the chat with a a five dollar donation thank you dude and uh he says in Ghostface voice what's your favorite philosophical horror movie and then he says uh prince of darkness is one of his uh his favorites at the moment hmm philosophical any, uh, horror any movie. thoughts I need i'll to kick see it off list. if you guys need a second to think about it yes, yeah please. go ahead raymond yeah I don't necessarily know that this qualifies as a as a philosophical horror movie uh, per se, but the first thing that came to my mind, dude, is a, a recent film called A Dark Song, which is, um, if you've ever seen the movie Primer, which is like a $7,000 time travel movie, it's basically, yeah, it's, it's basically like the um, spiritual version of Primer. It's it, it it's it gets like really deep tissue into um, like conjuring spells and uh, and how to manipulate time and life and death, but do it the right way, um, or else we will be trapped uh, within another realm. And it's just a really really cool movie. It's directed by Liam Gavin. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's it's currently streaming on Shutter. Who. Uh, fancy enough, they um, uh, they sponsor our show. I'm going to go with Martyrs, 2008 French movie. Uh, I think we've have we talked about it on this mo- podcast? Probably. We uh, haven't covered then, it, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie will fuck you up, but yeah. make sure to watch the French one, not the American one. Ooh, uh, Scream, Scream Two. <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this counts. I'm just going to quote a new character in, in Scream and say the Babadook. 
Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I think a lot of these, like, psych- like It Follows, Babadook, Hereditary, those are all great. But for me, it's got to be Von Trier's um, Antichrist. Antichrist? Yeah. Oh, good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I would even say, I don't know if Melancholia, I, I consider Melancholia sort of like cosmic horror, a psych- psych- yeah. psychological um, dread, like that kind of, like to me, those are those are terrifying. So In Possessor, yeah, yeah. The, new, the new Cronenberg kids. Oh, movie. sure. Oh, Jason Seeley popped Possessor. into the chat. Um, uh, Jason Seeley, uh, shout out Jason Seeley, by the way, on our, on our last live chat, he's in our mentions every single week, one of our most yes. devoted listeners. So thanks for yeah, all thanks your support, Jason. Jason. He watching. said a dark song is great. And he would also say annihilation. And then the witch is more of like a tragedy, but it's interesting when you view yeah. it through a lens of religious terror and the consequences of that. And, uh, I would say all of those are good. phenomenal. Phenomenal recommendations. I love Annihilation, love The Witch, and I would also say Alex Garland's first film, Ex Machina, deals oh, with uh, some very, very cerebral themes. Well, hold on. Dark City was one of his first films. Uh... No, his first <laughs> film was a director. Ah, okay. Um, and and, and uh, this isn't so much psychological horror, but if you love Wes Craven, my personal favorite Wes Craven movie is The People Under the Stairs. People Under the Stairs, yeah. Yeah, the movie <laughs> fucking rocks. And it's like a kid, a little kid is the, is the main character. It's great. And I think you're thinking of Alex Proyas, the director of Dark City there, Ryan. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, the crow guy. I think Jordan Peele is doing a new People Under the Stairs. Oh, is he? Oh, is he really? Or is he producing one? That's awesome. All right. Oh shit! Cool. Do, I mean, let's, do we know who's directing it? I assume him, right? No. Let's let's end this by just giving like a, a thank you to um, like Raymond just did to Jason and Dudabides and everybody else that is there constantly week in and week out on the live chat. We love you. Um, this is not a slight. This is just you know freeing things up so that we can kind of do more cool shit for for the content that we can produce for y'all. Um, let's get out of here. Where can people find you on the internet, Rashawn? You go first. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Simba Tattoo on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, when Cinephiles Attack is our our show. Um, we just did an episode on the new installment of Scream. We're about to do our top movies of 2021. So, yeah, find us on any podcast apps or platforms. So, thank you guys for having me. All right. Your Scream oh, yeah, nemesis, Raymond, where can people find you <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> Um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. And uh, it's a great, a great time to uh, jump on the When Cinephiles Attack bandwagon. The, uh, the Scream 2022 episode was great. And they just did Pan's Labyrinth, which we covered recently on the show. Cool, cool. Ryan? Hell yeah. Uh, Ryan's Game Show on, on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all that stuff. And de- uh, keep interacting with the show, though. De- keep sending us your emails yeah. and your voicemails and stuff for those mailbag episodes because we'll definitely be – we read all of them, no matter even if we get to them yeah. on the podcast. And we, you know, we'll respond to some of them, too. And uh, so thank you all for doing that. So. Yeah, so please definitely call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Leave us voicemails, and you can email us movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. I want to give a couple shouts, and then I do want to play one voicemail, and this will be the last voicemail that we play live. But so uh, the shout, I want to give a shout-out to Haley Blackburn, who recently completed a PhD thesis where our show – um, factored quite heavily as a sort of sociological cool. look at yeah a sociological look 
at media um, media commentaries, and um, I, I read all the sections at least where you talk about us, um, and uh, it was very flattering. A lot of the things that you discussed. So um, I think maybe there'll be some publications. So first of all, best of luck with your academic career, and second of all, thank you um, for taking us seriously. For me, that's like the fucking highlight. Like that's what we do this. At least that's what I do this for. Is thinking that somehow we can talk about film and have some sort of meaningful social and cultural impact. So thank you for and even pushing that further. if you need someone to further. peer review that, send it to Austin. <laughs> hey, Ma! Mom, I made it into the halls of academia. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then the last thing I want to do is I want to play Ryan's arch nemesis's voicemail. We've been teasing oh, this shit. for a while. This is Ryan's arch nemesis who has a voicemail. It is about Matrix. Can we play that voicemail? And then Bring we'll go it. ahead and get out of here. Hey, wise crack. It's Newman in Chicago, big film fan and Ryan's arch nemesis. Uh, Ryan, get well soon. You need to be well rested if we are to properly do battle. I want to respond to Matrix 4. Someone said that they thought Lana's Wachowski's decision to do this in the way she did was very punk rock. I found myself disagreeing, thinking to take the money of the big studio and to capitulate to their wants and needs while still getting in your own jazz, but ultimately making a big commercial for HBO Max and every subsequent Matrix property we're about to get, which will profit HBO Max and Warner Brothers more specifically. Wouldn't it have been more punk rock to have made the movie completely on her own without any of the studio involvement, just put together a small, scrappy crew of people who were true believers. Sure, it would have been low budget. Sure, she might have gotten sued, but that just would have gotten more attention to the film. And that would have been punk rock. Am I being too much of a purist here? Love your stuff, love what you do. Take care. Newman. Is Newman being too much of a purist? Ryan, uh, what, what do you think? Well, Newman... I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad I'm. Uh, I'm here today to to break this down because I actually kind of agree with you. Um, to be totally honest, yes, I, uh, the uh, most I punk had... rock thing in the world is to get sued into oblivion <laughs> by okay. the Warner I Brothers. Mean, yeah, like 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 uh, uh, Raymond was making fun of this before and said that that would be idiotic. I think was the term you used. <laughs> yes, I think it was idiotic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. And I, but I was yes. only saying that to protect you as as the man who is under attack by this this foul <laughs> well, I, beast calling. Him. I appreciate. That that Raymond but uh uh but I actually do agree with it. I think that that would have been cool if 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 all of a sudden Matrix 4 was like literally this mumblecore movie that costs like you know $100,000 that Lana Wachowski made on her own and it like was totally a deviation I would have gone Okay, interesting direction, but and she got sued for it from Warner Brothers. I mean, yeah, I think that that's pretty punk rock and cool. <laughs> would it have been a great movie? I mean, that's a whole other distinct, you know, I'd have to see it, you know, but like uh uh in terms of taking, yeah, I do agree that yeah, taking all the money from Warner Brothers, making this huge thing, it, it, it well, it, it really also a, an important part is how much notes did she get, or how much creative freedom freedom did she actually get and stuff. Which I, does do people really know that? I mean, I, I haven't really followed she behind the clear, scenes. On I that. don't think that movie would exist the way it exists if she didn't have total creative freedom on her. I I don't know. I mean, I feel like if you do, if you have. If you have a blank check from Warner Brothers, you're really going to make that movie? I don't know. I feel like there's yeah, some make whatever there. movie you want. Maybe yeah, I don't know. But, That's what's but, cool uh, about it. What do you I think? think the, the only way to settle this is that Newman, you should make a Matrix sequel and you should start <laughs> yeah. selling it online and yeah. see how long on it DVD. takes for the long arm of the law to come crushing down on you, Ryan. This is the plan. This is just between us. <laughs> the, the, 
this we're gonna finally get your nemesis behind bars. This is how you take him. Yeah, this is how you take Newman down. <laughs> thank you, Raymond. That was a good, good, good plan. Well, now that we've got that resolved, uh, thank you everybody for tuning in and listening. I'm Austin Hayden. You can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Check out Rashawn, Raymond, and Ryan on the internet as well. Let's get out of here. Follow us on uh, Twitter at SMTM underscore P-O-D. Make sure you subscribe on all the podcast outlets that you can possibly find so you can check in on what we're going to be doing. Next week, we're talking Little Miss Sunshine. And if you also want to read some philosophy to prepare for Little Miss Sunshine, read Read some freaking Nietzsche because Paul Dano's character takes a vow of silence and he's inspired by Nietzsche and that's one of the important themes in the film so we could talk about existentialism maybe and shit some, like that. Maybe some Proust as well. Maybe What's your some favorite Proust? Greg Kinnear movie? Oh, hey, I will say this. If you are going to read <laughs> if you are going to read Proust, the first like the first 30 pages of of the famous book, right? Is is absolutely amazing. Just check that out. Um okay, We got to get out of here. Little Miss Sunshine next week. We love you. Ryan, send us out, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been so many of the I'm going to catch you like a fish.